Hi, friends. Welcome to the Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. I had the privilege of speaking with the Reverend Dr. Lydia E. Munoz, an ordained elder in the Eastern Pennsylvania Annual Conference and the Executive Director of the National Plan for Hispanic Latino Ministry in the United Methodist Church. Lydia has the ability to speak prophetically as an activist, but it's her capacity for welcoming the complexities of our personal and communal experiences that make her insights so expansive. In this episode, she gracefully points to the ways we have misunderstood the Hispanic and Latino communities. And through that, she powerfully calls us to hope and God's grace as we move towards the future of the UMC. I feel like I know my church better because of this interview. And I think you'll appreciate it as much as I did. So grab that notebook, that choice beverage, and let's learn from the Reverend Dr. Lydia Munoz. Hello to the Reverend Dr. Lydia E. Munoz. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. Como estas? Oh, Lydia, I am so grateful that you would join me on the podcast. I've been really looking forward to spending some time with you today. And um, we met uh, probably a decade ago, I think, maybe oh even God. a little bit over, a little more than that, at a um, Academy of Spiritual Formation um at uh in Leesburg, Florida, Fruitland Park. Um yes. what it is now. And um that that particular academy was special because it was I think the first bilingual mm-hmm. academy mm-hmm. Um, where some sessions were in English but some sessions were in Spanish. Yes. And um it was really it was a really special space for me um just to to be in that kind of multilingual environment, but I got to meet you and, and experience your leadership, particularly in worship. And um, it was just, oh my gosh, I, I just remember being- Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, so. That was a special, that was a special moment. That was a special time. That was very yeah. intentional, so. It was, it was. And um, so, so much has happened <laughs> in a decade. Um, but I, I would love to know a little bit of your story um, and there's, I know there's just so much we could talk about, but I'd love to know a little bit of the story of how you became a United Methodist Christian. Um, we can just go from there. Just what, what are sort of the, the on-ramps that get us to the great Reverend Dr. Lydia Munoz? <laughs> sure, my pleasure. It's great to be here with you. Um, so my story starts um, in um, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So my parents, were from New York, you know, Puerto Ricans that moved to New York. We, you know, the original in the Heights folk. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And my three sisters, I have three sisters that were born in New York City. So they're New Yorkans. And then my brother and I uh, were born in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So we're Dutch Ricans. They're New Yorkans. We're Dutch Ricans. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, 
that um, we, you know, my parents were always involved in church, always in leadership. My my dad was the uh, church musician, um, kind of self-taught in one of the largest um, uh, Pentecostal, uh, Hispanic, mainly Puerto Rican churches in the Northeast. Um, this was a, you know, 2000 plus member church um, that was very instrumental in the life um, of the city of, of Lancaster. Mm. Um, and then my parents got a call to go do some church planting and missionary work. So we left to Guatemala, Central America. So when I was going to start my second grade, um, my parents said, we're moving to Central America. So we literally packed up a van and drove from Lancaster, Pennsylvania to Guatemala City. Um, it, it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I grew up in a tradition of, um, you know, the sons of God. Um, and also we would come back from Central America and come back to, you know, on rests and whatever in, uh, in Pennsylvania and visit my, you know, my, my older sisters, which there's like a 10 year gap between us um, and who had stayed behind just my brother and I had gone. So we would come back and one of my sisters um, started dating the church musician at the local Kojic church, the, you know, church oh. of God. Right. So we've got, you know, Pentecostal, other Pentecostal expressions, you know, so very charismatic community. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, long story short, um, when I full circle, when I decide to go back, when I decide to go to college, one of the colleges that I wanted to explore was Penn State. So it kind of brought me back full circle back to um Pennsylvania. After traveling Central America and then living in California, I graduated from high school in California because mm. my dad was planting churches. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I have the I have the the experience of the uh, you know all these army kids that move around to different. I have the same kind of experience. I don't know where home necessarily is, but that's that's been my experience um, mm. during college. Um, I was already having some existential questions about the theology that I was raised in and my lived experience. They mm -hmm. were clashing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I started asking some questions and I took a break from all this church thing. Um, and um, some experiences that were not... Uh, they were certainly transformative, but were not positive, oh. um, particularly as a woman in the church. Um, I heard this expression once uh, recently that sometimes there's it's been a lack of acknowledgement of the the leadership of women in the church in general. And in some communities of color, particularly, yeah. women have loved the church to death. Mm -hmm. 
their own death. Mm -hmm. Yep. I saw that. I, I experienced that. And so um, I just decided, yeah, no, that's not going to be me. So, um, yeah, I took a break. But in that break, you know, uh, here's something that maybe was kind of the precursor to the Methodist, um, the Wesleyan theology. I took a break, but God did not. God had, right? Oh, I love that. Yeah. God had um God had a way um of moving through that space. Hmm. And um I found a local uh you know a, a a Methodist congregation that had connections with one of my aunts in Puerto Rico. Hmm. So this pastor had connections. Oh who is your aunt? This aunt. And I, I, oh my God, this person was formative in my life and it, the whole thing. So I was just like, oh, <laughs> um, that um, ministry, that pastor, that congregation just opened the door to uh, welcoming my questions, welcoming my frustration, welcoming my anger, welcoming my pain, and also um, not um, not being surprised by it, but just willing to accompany me through yeah. it, through, through it. Yeah. Um, so that was, it was a good experience. And, and that witness of um, what Wesleyan theology looks like in a lived practical way was transformative to me. Wow. So when I took my vows, of membership, because I forget, you know, people often forget about that. When I took my vows of membership, I was I was ready to embrace this church, and I knew what I was stepping into, um, and ready to to uh, to dive in fully with my eyes fully open, fully aware. So, and it's been a trip ever ever since. <laughs> and I. Of that whole story, I, mean, I want to stop and like ask questions. So I'm, I'm gonna keep this moving. But I do have this one question because I I think sometimes we talk about things like you know, quote unquote deconstruction as like a new phenomenon. But 20 years of campus ministry, like I'm not surprised that in college you begin to ask these questions and even take this break. Like that is yes. that's the whole. I think that's supposed to happen at that stage so Absolutely. that Absolutely. your faith is yours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I even think that those who didn't go through it in college are destined to get there at some point. Um, and even all the hard work of trying to push it back. So I, I appreciate that that is a part of your journey that you're willing to name. I know some other folks that aren't as willing to name that season as much. Well, if we learned anything from the Apostle Paul is that here's a person, here's a dude that was in the his his understanding of what church meant, of what congregation meant, of what religious life meant, right? Mm -hmm. Completely dedicated, but had a complete crisis of faith to the point where he's left not seeing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Sometimes that not seeing is the place where vision is actually um, most alive. Wow. You know? Wow. Right? Right? So yes. that place of quote unquote darkness or that place of, 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 of no, no, no real seeing of anything. I, you know, I, I, I just know that those spaces are spaces God's doing something and, and there's no, I love the story where he has to like the, there's these scales that come off. And what is that? Mm -hmm. If not deconstructing what he thought he saw. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Already preaching. Okay. Um, <laughs> my sense is that that church that you experienced God's prevenient grace mm -hmm. and, and that brought you into United Methodism, was that a predominantly Hispanic space? Yes, it was. It was a, a, um, a Hispanic Latino congregation. Mm -hmm. um, um, and and I would say that it, they they would describe themselves, and I still describe myself as as methocostals, mm, mm. right? Very a lot of the people that were there had come out of the church that I grew up in, but okay. had done some deconstructing stuff and 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 you know and embraced. But what was great about this pastor was that he was he was able to acknowledge that. Um, you know, things that we forget about Wesley is that, you know, this dude would preach and people would fall out. Um, this dude would, right? And so all the markings of this charisma, right? That's these gifts of, of, um, of you know, embracing the mystical pieces of, of our um, theology of our um, practice of our experience of worship and you know so he he was not afraid of that mm. and, and and embraced all of that um, as well as embracing you know the justice work and thinking about um, you know how we walk in the world and how we witness in the world so there was no differentiating between um, evangelism and social justice, it was all in there. Yeah. So. so so, what was it like when you walked into another United Methodist Church that was Metho-Anglican <laughs> or Metho-Episcopalian, you know, like, yeah, what so, was that like? So I guess, you know, one of the things that Again, like I said, you know, leadership is everything, right? So uh, this pastor, and I should say, you know, that his his name, so that we're not trying to figure out who the mystery person is. Um, <laughs> he's he's the he's still alive, Reverend Doctor um, Irving Cotto, and mm -hmm. he's uh, retired in now living in Texas. Mm -hmm. And but one of the things that he um, had was this healthy appreciation of uh, the order of St. Luke mm. and um, everything that had to deal with the Eucharist, sacrament, liturgy. And he shared that with the congregation. I mean, he put together, his bulletins were textbooks. Mm. 
right? Mm. His, 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 the spiritual practices, all of those things. And so he um, taught us to learn the spiritual disciplines, the means of grace, the ways that we connect. So, you know, actually he was the person that was in charge of worship at the academy that we shared. And so he already had these, those, that was part, that's part of his DNA, right? Yeah. So he opened, so I mean, going to another expression of Methodism uh, that was a little more um, um, traditional in that sense um, was not as shocking for me as uh, as everybody thinks. Um, now, I think what became shocking was when the more you delve into it and the more you take leadership, like serving in cross-racial, cross-cultural uh, congregations mm -hmm. as a, as a pastor or as a student and hearing things like, like, you know, um, there's low worship and then there's high worship. And I'm like, what is that a code for what we do is low worship? Ooh. You know, so so unpacking those things, right? And what yeah. we what we mean by that, or you know, um, uh, that was more of a, a shock than than actually. I I wherever however people engage with the divine, if that's in quiet reflection or organ music or you know looking at stained glass windows and sit, you know, whatever you do to engage, that is completely legitimate and it's as spiritual as someone who engages um, uh, the divine by listening to a Tupac record. I mean, mm -hmm. that's real. Mm -hmm. uh, it is as real as someone engaging to the point, engaging a song to the point where you are, you have no choice but to fall on your knees and cry. That's mm. the only response. So uh, all of these ways, I mean, there's, yeah, all of these ways are ways of engaging. And so when we dif when we begin to differentiate, that's not what we do here, or that's not, uh, that's where we get into trouble, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm so glad I asked that question because it was, <laughs> oh, it's going to happen all through this interview. I'm so grateful. So eventually you experience a call to clergy ministry. We're all called to ministry. That's right. We're all called to ministry, yes. mm -hmm. but something special happens for oh, you. Can you Crazy. tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I will. So um, um, my pastor begins to, um, you know, talk to me about, leadership and you know the young people are gathering so i started off with youth ministry right so i go to i go to penn state to study adolescent psychology because this is the area that i wanted to focus on which and then um and i said but i'm gonna be a mental health therapist and then work on in in, in youth ministry at the, you know because i really wanted to to work with disadvantaged or what what back in the day used to call uh crisis, uh, teenagers in crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was working as, um, or have worked as a 
mental health therapists with adjudicated kids, which are kids that are right before they, um, they're one step away of being incarcerated. So mm. kind of like that place of, of intervention. Um, and so the, those were the, the, the leadership skills that um, uh, were being identified in the church. And so taking uh, shape in that, and then also uh, worship, which has always been a part of my family's life. Um, those began to flesh out and taking part in the, in the, in the life of, of the church. And then my pastor says, you know, um, the national plan <laughs> has a new training for, to develop lay missioners. Mm. Would you be interested in this? It's going to take place in Perkins. It's a two week course. And, you know, this was in 1992. So um, I go, he sends me, I'm like, okay. I send, sends me to Perkins. Um, and it kind of just um, opened up a whole other area. So, and I know we'll talk about this maybe a little later, but let me just explain what a lay missioner is. So the National Plan for Hispanic Latino Ministry of the United Methodist Church is one of um, the six ethnic plans in the life of the church and uh, the life of the denomination, really. Um, so, and we, the plan helps conferences strategize around Hispanic Latino ministry for their context. I'm really glad you went there. Um, really glad. So thank you for giving us some definitions there. Good. Yeah, yeah. And so lay missioners were people that were identified in local congregations that could develop. I mean, we, you know, a lot of people are calling them now life groups or small groups or whatever, but we call, we use the base of community um, base of liberation theology um, if in uh, Latin America mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to, um, to kind of identify communities of faith. Now, and these communities of faith are connected to the local church. Yeah. So the lay missioner acts like that person that extends the witness of the local church to the life of that community. Mm. So there was a community of new persons, new immigrants at this point, who were coming to a particular place 15 miles away from the local church. And when I came back from that training, you know, past the pastor and I, we talked about how we could develop a small group, right? And that kind of opened the door to, um, to me considering being called. Now, you know, there were a lot of great things I got from, you know, the Assemblies of God Church. What I never got was the affirmation that a woman could actually be a clergy person. Wow. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, there were some attempts, but I mean, other than my great goal in life, which was probably supposed to be to get married and to teach Sunday school. So, um, all of which are great things, um, but if you're not given options or opportunities to make choices with good information, mm -hmm. um, then you're not, then, then you have to say, I didn't get the complete option or the complete. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and, and I think it's it's interesting just to ping back to something you said earlier about the ways that women love the church even to their death. And I, I, I have, you said that and like 50 women that raised me came to my mind of which many of them have passed on. Mm -hmm. um, some of them who even passed on literally on their way to church. I mean, um, you know, like I, I, so that resonated. So to think that women are giving so much of themselves to the life of the church. And yet in some of those same spaces, we don't know how to acknowledge the call Absolutely. of, of women. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a dissonance that is really difficult mm -hmm. to, to hear. I, I hear it as a, as a male. I can't imagine what it's like to hear that as a woman. Um, well, and in some of these, so I, you know, I'm so grateful for, uh, for movements like BLM and others that, that feature, that, that are very clear on who that leadership ca came from, because that has not been the case in other social justice movements, right? Oh, Where mm -hmm. we know women carry the the real weight and the real and putting their lives putting their bodies right yeah. on, on the line um and so uh, yeah i never i i didn't realize that until i was given this option of you could be in ministry and then at that point i met um who is now the current uh, president of Marcha, and I can talk to you about Marcha, um, Reverend Lisette Perez. And I met um, Reverend Yolanda Pupo Ortiz, which was, she worked in GCOR. Um, and she, the, both of these women uh, just kind of, um, you know, just opened doors, right? For me to explore, um, you know, I'm I'm very grateful for Lisette uh, because she not only opened doors, she just she literally come on, you know, <laughs> and and pushed, you know, said you can do this, um, because we shared similar experiences of coming from the Pentecostal church and right, right. Uh, living into that. So, um, yeah, uh, that began the journey of of exploring um call and and all all of those things so yeah so you've served congregations in multiple annual conferences yes um well back up you you went to wesley um, um, in dc yes um, and ordained in the eastern Eastern pennsylvania, pennsylvania yeah. conference right eastern pennsylvania conference um and have served, yeah, I know you served down here in Florida. Yes. Uh, in Susquehanna. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, I served in Baltimore, Washington. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and we're going to fast forward, though I'm sure we'll pick up narratives on the way, you know, on the way back through, but you're doing something really special right now of serving, as you've already talked to us about, the national plan for Hispanic yes. Latino ministries. I, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about a little more about the national plan, specifically the one that you're serving and, and your role in it. And then could you help us understand 
specifically our the part of our church that is Hispanic and Latino, um, because I, I, I know this. A lot of people listening are like, wait, national plan? What? I didn't. I didn't know. I've been a United Methodist for how long? I didn't know. And today <laughs> was a good day. Yes. For us to learn something new and sad that it's today, but it's today. And we will rejoice and be glad of it. So take um, us down that road. Absolutely. Okay. So in 1988 at the General Conference, Marcha, which is the caucus of um, Methodist. Hispanic and Latino. So there's, it's, Marcha is the um, Metodistas Asociados Representando La Causa Hispano-Latina. So it's the, it's the caucus of Hispanic Latino Methodists. Mm -hmm. um, and we are intentional about saying Methodist because it also includes um, CMAL, which is the, um, the, the the council of latin american uh bishops and, and 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 churches and it also includes puerto rico which is not united methodist it's affiliated right and right. the church of, of mexico okay so it's important to 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 notice that but marcha has is a caucus that has been around since uh the 70s af right after bmcr BMCR was the, the, the catalyst. BMCR is Black Methodist for Church Renewal. The catalyst that kind of moved, um, you know, um, the church in many ways. And uh, one of the ways was um, the birth of, of Marcha in some ways um, with Bishop Galvan, who was our mm -hmm. first Hispanic Latino bishop, really. So uh, Marcha comes to um, General Conference, like it always does, in, in 1988 and, set, and presents a report uh, uh, and a legislation asking the church to study how it will respond to the growing population of Hispanic Latinos in the United States, all right? So, you know, GBGM was part of that uh, uh, report and the church asked GBGM and others to do a study. The results of the study was the implementation of a national office to uh, provide a ministry plan for the denomination. Mm. Now, it's really important that we understand the name. So the name is the National Plan for Hispanic Latino Ministry, not ministries, Ministry of the United Methodist Church. Mm. So that means that this is not it. This is not about um, us coordinating all the Hispanic Latino ministries of all the denomination. This is about us coordinating and helping the denomination develop strategies, right, mm -hmm. with each individual conference mm -hmm. to how they will respond, right? Mm -hmm. We're not doing the work for you. We're just helping you uh, create a strategy to how you will respond to Hispanic Latino, intentional Hispanic Latino ministry in your context. Mm. Right. Mm. So uh, because every context is different, 
we right. acknowledge that. So what happens in New England is not the same that happens in South Carolina or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. uh, what happens in, 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 uh, in Texas, which by the way, we're getting ready to celebrate 150 years of Mexican American Methodism. Wow. Yeah. So, so there's a whole history of the Methodist church being the Methodist church before the United States was the United States. You see mm. what I'm saying? So, yeah. Yeah. So, so um, it's a, the contexts are, are totally different, right? So the plan exists to, to one of the words that we use a lot is acompañamiento. And it comes from the idea of what the accompaniment does to the melody. Oh. Right? Yeah. So you have an accompaniment on the bottom of the melody um, and whatever the melody is that's being created in your annual conference, we want to come alongside and make and, and just accompany you. Make sure it sounds beautiful and it's in its beloved community is what it should sound like, right? Um, that's mm. the work of the plan. I'm just <laughs> I'm just processing that one. <laughs> like that's that is beautiful. Um, what do we what do we need to know? What what do we what is it clear to you that we as United Methodists in the U.S. don't know? We clearly don't know some things. What is it? What is it? Yeah. That we don't know? So um, one, the notion, the narrative that the U.S. Census has set up for us is incorrect. Hmm. So the U.S. Census usually has four or five boxes for you to identify yourself, right? And um, it generally lumps in all Hispanics into one group. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it does not, oh, well, oftentimes, it does not um, acknowledge that with by virtue of the reality of the story of migration and immigration mm -hmm. um our community is multicultural yeah so the idea that we're monolithic is that has to be you know the, no one can say hispanics are or hispanics we can we can project and say um, things like um, this um, research has shown that there is some movement towards this. However, you know, um, so that's the reality, right? That um, uh, that between first generation of Hispanic Latinos and second and third and fourth generations, and to some people, some even fifth generations, um, are the lived experience um, is, is, is fluid. And what I mean by that is what people have experienced as first generation new folk to the country um, um, may have some similarities, but the reality that we've got, you know, 
DACA students, that we've got people like me who are bicultural, bilingual, bicultural, right? Um, and DACA students also would identify that way as, um, but, um, you know, we're, we're, we have a different understanding of what it means to be Hispanic Latino that relates to a first generation, but also has other nuances. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if you heard the term 200 percenters. Um, that's something that um, I've recently had some study in. And 200 percenters are, are Latinos who identify 100% as Hispanic Latino and 100% as U.S. folk. So like I'm American, right? So that reality um, is a different reality than, than maybe other communities, right? The beauty of it is that we kind of all, all kind of share the same space and sometimes the same, the same struggle, right? Um, family is always important. Mm -hmm. um, uh, those values of community and um, and spirituality, um, however it's ex it is expressed, is also very important. Um, so yeah, this is this is fascinating to me. And in, in part, I have you know living in Florida specifically, I have uh, Puerto Ricans that I grew up with. My best friend is Cuban. Um, with the college with uh, Mexican immigrants and and just and and recognizing so quickly. I mean, my you know, friends um, from Venezuela and from Guatemala and mm -hmm. and recognizing very quickly that this tendency to flatten all of these stories into one not only is just a sign of disrespect, but it makes it very difficult to get to know people on their own terms. That's because right. You think you know their story. Right, right. Because right. of some news article or this one archetype. This right. And, and I, one of the things that I have encountered, and I'd love for you maybe to talk about this or correct me mm. if I'm wrong on this, is the different ways that Hispanic, Latino, identity and culture manifest within the church, that there isn't this one way that it, that we encounter it, that we experience. And I'd love for you, if, is it possible to kind of describe a little bit of the diversity within Hispanic Latino ministry across our connection? Yeah, that's, that's, in, that's a very um, um, hard thing to do because I'll tell you what, um, the truth is that and this is something that conferences and the denomination has not been able to recognize is that to prepare Hispanic Latino leadership, clergy or lay to lead congregations in this setting means that you need to prepare them to be interculturally competent. Hmm. Right. Hmm. Because you cannot take um, and just because somebody is warm-blooded and speaks Spanish doesn't mean they can relate to people in their congregation. Right. That's not a, it's not a, a definition anymore. Um, so um, they need to be able to understand, like, for example, I mean, my experience, right? So 
I don't, I mean, I, people think people, people watch movies or people watch shows and they think that, you know, all Puerto Ricans are the same. We're not. Uh, and, uh, you know, so my experience is this Puerto Rican, uh, um, who lived part of her life in Central America, who lived part of her life in California, who lived part of her life in back in Pennsylvania and has been, you know, uh, so um, my ability to connect with people from Central America is is something that I had to learn to do, right? Mm -hmm. As a Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. And that my father and mother had to really learn to do because they were older than they were. They were really formed in in Puerto Rico. So so the different dynamics was 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 real, and um, and they were willing to engage in that process, right? Mm -hmm. Of of then moving to California and the reality of the long tradition, long tradition of um, Latino resistance. Right. And, and really connecting with, I mean, I was three, I was one of three Puerto Ricans in my school. Everybody else was either Mexican, Samoan, hmm. African American, and some white people sprinkled in. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, so it was, this was the, this was the, um, but not everybody has that exposure. Right. Right. And so it's a, a, a pastor, you know, from, from Latin America um, would have to understand and be taught, you know, interculturally taught how to pastor a group of Cubans, hmm. right? Or mm -hmm. how to, or likewise, Cuban pastor. So, so already, it's already built. When we say Latino ministry in the U.S., we're already talking about people who are in, doing intercultural uh, competency stuff on their own they're they're learning this on the fly they have to yeah yeah right they have yeah. to. um i love that we have all these conversations about um i was talking to somebody else actually a, a cuban colleague of mine uh as at a, about spiritual academy and you know we're having all these conversations about resilience and let's have a spiritual academy and i'm thinking you know i don't remember ever having courses about resilience it just kind of happened because if you don't get this done, you out of a job or you don't get to eat or you, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So there's a lot of people that are serving us food, that are cleaning our houses, that are um, doing, that are may not be what we call you know, in leadership, but they've got some intercultural skills like you would not believe. Mm. And some resilient skills, because that's the nature of what it means to be sometimes in this in this context. So, and this is a crazy question to ask, sure. but I'll go there. The national plan mm -hmm. for Hispanic Latino ministry had its way. Oh, <sighs> what what would we as United Methodists, particularly in the U.S., be doing? So I want to say that we one 
the national plan recognizes the, and the words of Father Richard Rohr are the exquisite mutuality, right? That we share with all our ethnic plans and the work of uh, the General Commission on Religion and Race. And we should name the ethnic plans. Um... So the it's the um, the strengthening the Black Church for the twenty first century. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the Asian American Language Ministry Plan, the um, Native American uh, Comprehensive Plan, the um, uh, Pacific Islander Plan, mm-hmm. the Korean Ministry Plan, and the um, Oh, am I skipping one? Um, no, I think that's it. I think that's it. That's yeah. the, other, the last one is... It's a caucus. It's, 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 yeah. yeah, well, it's us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. So that's that. That's it. So um, what, if, I, if I had my way <laughs> at General Conference, I would... Um, Decenter the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. From it just being a US centered conversation to understanding how these ethnic plans and the work of G Corps, right, mm-hmm. are the bridge to connect a global community together, mm. right? Because we already do this. We do this within our context. I mean, we're always in the midst of new people coming right in and also the reality that 66 plus percent of us are born here, right? Mm. So there's these connections, which means that if we're not connecting with some of our uh, communities of faith outside of the U.S., right, as relevant and as important and as the place where spiritual formation may even begin, you know, people's first encounter, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, If we're not connecting there, then, you know, it's not, it's not a fuller picture. So I just, I wish that the church would center the work of the plans and the work of G Corps. This is uh, to me. This is our. This is our spiritual call. Mm. Right now. Let's take a quick break. Sure. Lydia, you were in, uh, you were at the special session uh, in 2019. Yes. Yeah. And I, it's a, it's a story, a moment, an event that I bring up in most of our episodes, because I do believe so much of who the United United Methodist Church is today is, and, and the things that we're going through today is because of what happened in February of 2019. I, I just can't gloss over it. Absolutely. Um, I, 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 I am interested, one, in, in how you felt about the passing of the traditional plan and the way that it happened, but I 
I'm also curious of a Hispanic Latino lens of that as well, recognizing that there's not one story there, but um, can you, if you could give a little bit of, and I'll, I'll say this, so much of our understanding of what happened on the floor of that special session and its aftermath is all through a white lens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I am hoping to continue to lift up the multiple stories, the multiple impacts of, of what happened there. So I'm, I'm curious just what might a Hispanic, Latino, United Methodist have said at the passing of the traditional plan or the, the multiple stories that might have emerged out of that part of our church? So I think one, so the first thing I wanna say is that I'm grateful for this question because most of the time in most of the spaces of the general church, the Hispanic Latino perspective is not asked for. And that's been a narrative for a long time, right? So, and that's, I don't think that's just Hispanic Latino narrative. When I speak to my, my um, um, black colleagues, I um, hear the same thing. No, they, they haven't asked us yet. So we just gonna wait and see, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, which is sometimes our response as well, because they don't ask. So, um, so you wait and see, mm -hmm. right? And then you make a decision. Sometimes some people are pressured to make a decision. And sometimes, um, you know, with the variety and the multicultural multi-experience of uh, uh, of a people um, that speak Spanish. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, there are a variety of expressions of what it means to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Right. So um, I think that that, um, I wanna start there. The second thing that I think it, we share in common with a lot of the people who left that space and also began to start living into that, um, what that looked like mm -hmm. was, oh, did we vote for this? Mm. You see what I'm saying? Like, mm. so I don't think the, the fullness of what we were voting into really became a, a, until it became an impact in our local context. So when churches, right, found themselves having to decide and people within the congregation, almost like a little, you know, when the history of the Civil War was the, one of the most marked things that was part of that was that it divided families in half right? Mm. Divided communities in half. Mm. And, and so 
in many ways, this decision kind of did the same thing where congregations were having to do the work of this is what it means if we go this way. And this is what it means if we stay this way, or this is, you know, on both, both ways, right. Just Mm -hmm. this whole complex of reality that this is going to tear us. And it has. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. It has, it has, it has produced that. Um, one of the gifts of, I think, of the community um, that I serve and and that I come from is that, you know, we come from communities that have this. Um, notion of what it means to sit around the dinner table and more things have more things of consequence happen in the kitchen than they do anywhere else in the house. I hear that. Yes. Right. So um, in those spaces where we are, um, where we are fiercely defending our opinion while we pass the rice and beans, mm-hmm. where we're fiercely um, um, advocating or, or speaking our truth while we're, you know, asking for more tortillas from the kitchen, whatever, you know, getting, mm-hmm. uh, I think that is, um, that is a gift my um there there've been a couple of of my friends who have experienced dinner table with with me and some of my friends and colleagues and family and and they're like well you guys are so loud i know i know it's okay um because this is the way we and and we interrupt each other and we're <laughs> like you know no we're going to you know uh, and and so there's almost like this built-in way of understanding that there is diversity in the midst of our mm-hmm. unity, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which is a gift, I think. Right. It's a gift we can offer to the church too. Um, but this, you know, this decision of 2019 really puts stressors on that. And I, as I think about just what's happened since 2019, um, the the delegations that were elected at the next season of annual conferences in response, the the protocol, um, even the launch of the WCA, well, the launch of the GMC, um, rather, and uh, and now we're in you know this time of disaffiliations. That when we are used to being in the minority in a space trading one minority space for another minority space doesn't feel like that much of a a win. It's not a win. And, and sometimes I wonder if particularly for United Methodists of color, this moment is asking them to choose between theology and identity. Mm Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, is that a conversation that's happening, that's taking place? 
I think I, I think you you're right. I think there is something there there is a, a something about that. I think um, in all of this conversation, both the traditional plan and 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 the one church plan and or whatever we're becoming um, in the future is this constant conversation about what is it how does this um what does this mean for me uh for my community right what is it what does it mean what are the things that we um will be giving up what are the things that you know if if we are you know we've been the word inclusion full inclusion is has always been part of this narrative and depending on who you ask um it has different meanings so if we are going to be a church that really is going to value full inclusion um then we are going to need to do a serious deep dive on what how what's the kind of what's the shape of the church going to be yeah if we really do some deconstructing work around that mm. right yeah. um and then at the same time at the same time some of the conversation that is happening um with let me back up so the national plan has um or one of the things that we're hoping we can do at this general conference is changing the name from it being the national plan to maybe just the plan for hispanic latino ministry because that way it's much more it has global impact yeah as, as opposed to just u.s centered um so uh, um, one of the things that we are recognizing is that, you know, the plan has this wonderful track, particularly, right, very focused on the recent growth back in 1988 and then subsequently, right, of the growth of, of new communities developing, you know, whether they were um, people immigrating or, um, yeah, new communities. And, and so we we de developed strong tracks, right, that helped develop leadership, both laity and then clergy, to respond to this growth, right? Yeah. And yeah. that's fantastic. In fact, that will always be a part of who we are, always. That's always going to be a track. But over the last 10 years, 10, 15 years, the plan has also done a lot of research along with our partners. So, so the work of the plan is done in collaboration with all the general agencies, you know? So we have, we work with discipleship, we work with higher ed, we work with um, uh, the Board of Church and Society. We, uh, and in fact, we're the only ethnic plan that does that. We have it intensely mm. in our legislation because, mm. um, you know, we can't be, uh, the one plan for everybody, you know, without the partnership of others. I mean, that's, 
that's how we're shaped. We're connectional, right? right. So, so our work is 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 in collaboration. It gets carried out through the work of of the uh, agencies, and we're so grateful for that. But one of the works that we did with discipleship ministries is this um, research and study around the second, third, and fourth generation bicultural. Um, and what I mean by bicultural is people who identified with two cultures, two realities yeah, in the yeah. U.S., right? And would also it also means that these are persons that are um, also um, moving. They're, 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 they have roots in their abuelas and abuelos spirituality and religious expression and religious experience, but they're also gaining some other things, right? As they live their experience in this context, right? So part of it is that this generation is a generation that has been more politically and socially involved than probably any other generation, even though, you know, we, we've got some groundbreaking stuff in the 60s and 70s, right? With mm -hmm. Huerta and all those people that built, that that were amazingly, uh, you know, built a, a platform, right? Right, right. But, and, and this generation is moving it beyond this, to this uh, multi- cultural reality and identity. Gustavo Gutierrez used to call it raza cosmica, a cosmic race, mm -hmm. right? That mm -hmm. is, you know, that means, uh, you know, we've got people that are, um, uh, you know, loving, in loving relationships with uh, uh, the uh, Korean community with the, with the, you know, with the African-American community for a long time. And the, the, so, I mean, it's, it's this right reality where, where these differences um, important, but not enough to break you up. Not family dividing issues and maybe ah, not even church dividing issues. And 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 maybe even um creating space for some real conversations about um whiteness mm. around decentering, mm -hmm. around decolonization, mm -hmm. which has a lot of impact on how our religious and theological understanding is formed and shaped. You're right. Right? Wow. Um, uh, from our countries of origin to this space that we're in now. And that deconstruction, it's so interesting to me because that deconstructing is leading us where? Right back to the beginning. Hmm. Where we're discovering, oh, so two-spirited folks, they've always existed, hmm. right? So in a way, I want to say this, uh, I, I've said this before in other spaces, and in a way, I wonder if the same struggle that we see our country having with critical race theory is the same struggle the church has with critical church history. 
Oh, Lydia. Right? Come on, Doc. Mm. So is it the same? Are we, is it this history that we are so desperately trying to run away from? Hmm. You know, and that's what, the history of the church is full of women who were already in leadership. And it wasn't until later, later that we discovered, oh yeah. And, 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 and in some spaces we're still struggling with that, mm -hmm. right? So somewhere along the line, this history was blotted out and dare I use the word whitewashed, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um. And I don't know if if this means we need to really think about in this new iteration of who we are, are we going to embrace this critical space that we're in? Hmm. And it doesn't mean that we're about changing people's opinion about whatever, you know, their theological, their consciousness, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're, they want you to bring all of that. that that's legit. What we can't continue to allow is that form of oppression that says, because you believe this way, therefore you will act this way over someone else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? And that's, you know, the proverbial foot on my neck. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We literally have not even gotten into this conversation. I mean, I just even just listening to you right now, realizing the ways that 2019 and its aftermath for us is not just a reckoning around our theological commitments directed towards human sexuality, but quite possibly our reckonings around our inability to really deal with our histories. Yes. How, how we bring our histories into our congregations and into the bar of the conference, if I could be so bold as to say. Yes. From your position at the National Plan, looking out on United Methodism, is your sense that Hispanic Latinos by and large are hanging in there in the midst of this tough season we're in, or are they sort of saying, you know, our cousins left several decades ago. We might we might be following. What what's your sense there, if there is a sense? Yeah. Um so my experience across the denomination has been again the position of power that Hispanic Latino ministry has in the life of the church mm -hmm. or has been allowed to have mm. which is minimal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So most of our ministries, um, uh, most of our ministries are not fully chartered congregations. And most of the time, I mean, I could I could say this with a, you know, it'd be um, I I know I have documentation somewhere, but um, that the the amount of elders um, 
Hispanic Latino elders with voting privilege, with the ability to be elected to general conference, you know, both that, you know, and laity that come to, to annual conference, it's frightfully small, right? Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of times our ministries sit within um, congregations, um, Unfortunately, that has been the practice where, you know, a, a, a congregation that wants to develop or wants to, um, or at least mentions that, oh, there's a Hispanic community, let's start some ministry here or whatever, or allow the ministry to be, um, to share the space, okay, which all uh, is a whole other episode of shared space and and how that pulls out all kinds of interesting things <laughs> uh, from people. Anyways, so um, so they don't. Um, we're not talking about congregations that are necessarily chartered for the most part. Now, there's cool. some conferences that have more chartered congregations, mm -hmm. um, and other conferences have less. To my, um, to in my experience, the conferences or the the churches that are the ministries that are leaving are either leaving because they sit within congregations that are leaving, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. or um, they have received serious misinformation. Hmm. around areas such as if the conference, if the general conference votes to remove the language, then you will be obligated to marry people and to have um, an LGBTQ pastor, right? And um, we, we know that that's not the case. In fact, you don't have to marry anybody the book of discipline does i mean you i've refused listen i've i've refused to marry heterosexual couples mm -hmm. because in the in the you know things that i noticed throughout the premarital council then i said no y'all ain't ready I'm mm -hmm. not, don't mm -hmm. get don't get god involved <laughs> <laughs> you know into your mess right now yeah yeah you know to take care of some things so um yeah you have the you don't you don't, that's, and, and churches are assigned pastors according to that church's um, gifts and profile. And that's why we have a, a church profile. And there aren't enough queer clergy to go around anyway. So. <laughs> I know it's not like an invasion is happening. I know, right? I'm really grateful for the way you answered that question because you actually brought it back down to the ground. Just and I, I know, I can tell you stories of people telling me, um, we've been told that we don't have to, we don't have to be included in the vote of the majority church of, of which we live because, you know, we're just a ministry. And I'm like, oh, no, no, you are members of this church, right? If you're a ministry of the church, you're members of this church. When you take in members in your, in your local community of faith and you're connected to this uh, a local church, you are members of that church, right? And you as a community of faith 
are you you can self-determine. You can say, I don't, um, we don't agree with this, uh, with, with this uh, decision, this vote, and we're going to go uh, ask the DS to place us in another place or put us, you know, make us members of the annual conference. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, that, yeah. so that we don't have to be drug around every time somebody changes their mind, you know? So uh, that, that process of educating and empowering has pointed to the, um, the discrepancies, right? Mm-hmm. Of being this marginalized community or this community of, people that you minister to um, as an outreach, mm. right? Mm. Wow. So that, that's been um, really powerful, really powerful, this moment of, you know, no, 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 you do have power. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So. Lydia, this has been so good for me personally. And I, I feel like, I understand my church better because mm-hmm. of this conversation. I'm I'm wondering if you have hope for the United Methodist Church and what that hope looks like for you. Oh my gosh. So this that word has been a part of a lot of discussion uh re- recently. Um so I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Miguel de la Torres seminal work around embracing hopelessness, mm, mm. right? Um, where he talks about how people who embrace hopelessness create hope, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and it's kind of like the uh, Antonio Machado uh, poem that says, Caminante no hay camino, se hace el camino al andar. So, uh, Sojourner, there is no road, you make the road by walking. Yes. Right? Yes. So I think that for a lot of us um, in marginalized spaces, we have learned not to hope for a plan, right? That somehow there's going to be this divine intervention from, I don't know, some body in the larger church or some major, you know, that's not where our hope lies, hmm. right? Um, because we've seen over and over again where plans have been given that are just like, I'm like, well, this contextually, this doesn't make sense. So I think where the hope is, is out of the fact that you've got to, at some point, come to a place where you're hopeless about this space producing something and you're hopeful in the capacity, the time, true capacity, tried and true capacity of your own community producing, right? Orchata out of water and rice, right? Just uh, producing something amazing out of you know, and I think that is the the hallmark of where I see hope, right? Mm. That um, when people talk about, oh, there's now going to be, 
United Methodist deserts. Hello, somebody. There's been United Methodist deserts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In communities where they need it the most, there has been white flight happening for a long time, right? And these spaces are being occupied more and more by new communities, by different communities, by a regeneration of, of communities, right? And so um, maybe um, the hope is that we have always been doing these things of regeneration, of re, uh, replanting, reseeding, resowing, re and and every time we get too close to relying on institution to give us the saving plan, right? We are reminded that wait a minute, we got to go back to this what we brought, what we came, what was always a part of us to create hope as we walk. Hmm. Right? Oh. Yeah, to create hope as so, you know, I believe in the United Methodist Church, not because of what as an institution it could possibly provide, but because of the love, the commitment, the uh, hope that was tilled by those who came before me who were also people who struggled to find in their beloved denomination, right? This whole process of prevenient grace um, that goes before us even before we had ethnic plans. That's where my hope is. <laughs> oh man. Reverend Dr. Lydia Munoz, I am just grateful for you for your story, the journey, um, your leadership, mm. your ministry, uh, it continues to inspire me. And um, just really thankful that you joined me today. I am so appreciative of you. Thank you for this conversation. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.